0: Reflections on William Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum part 5 Never did young man fancy with so eternal and so fixed a soul he said Now it's absolutely clear there's absolutely no equivocation everything is perfectly clear now it's all perfectly defined and he's going out to avenge himself on Diomedes. And he says this As much as I do cressed love, so much by weight hate I her Diomed. See, not only is it a triangle, it's an equilateral triangle. <laughs> the amount of love exactly equals the amount of hate. Now if one were to wor- were to were to Apply a little algebra to that formula, one would discover some things that would undermine the whole thing. The love is exactly proportional to the hate. What are we? Be, what's being revealed here? Is there any other relationship between them? Do they have? Do they need one another in some way? He goes on to say, nothing will compare to quote my prompted sword falling on diamond. And the word prompted is key here. Now this is the one, this is the man, who when the play began said, I am weaker than a woman's tear, less valiant than the virgin in the night, and skillless as unpracticed infancy. And now he is, never did young man fancy with so eternal and so fixed a soul. And my prompted sword falling falling on Diomedes, like nothing you could compare it to. The, his sword has been prompted. When he goes to the field in, in scene four of act five, Troilus and Diomedes are fighting on stage, and they sword fight off. They sort of drift off stage as they fight. And as they go off, Troilus says, Fly not, for shouldst thou take the river Styx, I would swim after. Now, the river Styx had been associated with Troilus' longing for Cressida. Remember that? Mm-hmm. He was waiting to have Pandarus take off the river Styx. It's the river of hell, the river of the underworld, the river of the dead. And now he says, if you should take the river Styx, I'll follow after you. I'm so intensely preoccupied with you that I will die killing you. I would rather die and see you die than see you get away. See? Totally preoccupied. This is exactly the logic of the, we hope now, uh, uh, passing nuclear arms race. Exactly the same logic. It's the logic of that scene in the, uh, uh, in the bottom of hell where, where uh, the uh, Archbishop Ruggieri is getting his head eaten by uh, Count Ugolino, devouring, devouring, and that's exactly, by the way, what Thersites says when he sees these two. He comes on stage right after they've gone off stage, and he says, What's become of the winching rogues? I think they have swallowed one another. And that's emotionally exactly what has happened. They have become completely fixed on each other. The obsessional obstacle. And Thersites says, I think they have swallowed one another. I would laugh at that miracle, yet in a sort, lechery eats itself. Hector and Achilles meet on the battlefield. Achilles is out of breath, and so Hector says, well, let's wait and fight when you catch your breath. Very noble. And uh, in a conversation with Trollus earlier, it's indicated that that's that's the way Hector is. He plays by the rules. So you would think that maybe Achilles would reciprocate Achilles has told his Myrmidons to attack Hector when they see him, and they come upon him shortly thereafter, and Hector says, I am unarmed, forego this vantage, Greek. He's, he's unarmed. And Achilles says, strike, fellows! strike, this is the man I seek, and they all kill him. So much for honor. All of that talk about honor goes up in a puff of smoke, and Achilles then says, On, Myrmidons, and cry you all amain, Achilles hath the mighty Hector slain. See? Craven cowardice and lying is what it finally all comes to. Troilus finds out that Hector is dead, the Trojans find out that Hector is dead, and that is tantam- tantamount to realizing that the that it's all over with, that the war is lost. And Troilus can only find one way of coming from that news of Hector's death with some kind of direction. He says, Hector is dead. There is no more to say. Stay yet, he says. I will pursue his killer Achilles. Thou great-sized coward, no space of earth shall sunder our two hates. I'll haunt thee like a wicked conscience still that moldeth goblins swift as frenzy's thoughts. With comfort, go. Hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. In other words, any genuine hope is gone. Any true aspirations for a a better Troy, a future without war, all of that is gone. No hope of that. There's only one thing that resembles faintly in a kind of parodied way, hope, and that is hope of revenge. Now, this is a person who is on the threshold of nihilism, and he has disguised the threshold to himself by throwing his life into a strategy of revenge. With comfort go. In other words, no longer, don't look back. Hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. And this is the final culminating fact of the mimetic development. Complete, useless fixation on the foe. And at that very moment, when Trollus is face to face with what is a thinly veiled nihilism, at the edge of the stage, just outside the curtain, appears Pandarus. And he says, psst, psst. see? motions to him it's such a piece of dramatic art it's Pandarus saying you want to you want to put another quarter in you want to go around again would you like my help now usually we take several turns we we throw several quarters away on the Pandarus ride before we arrive at the recognition of its poverty and disaster. But Shakespeare only has two hours, so Troilus gets his one time round. And he says to Pandarus, Hence, broker lackey, ignominy and shame, pursue thy life, and live I with thy name. Now, this is the I think the beauty of this play is the way it ends. It, it, ends in a, it ends in an ugly way, but it is an ugliness that reveals something really marvelous. I think it reveals William Shakespeare in an uncanny way. Let me share with you something again from René Girard. This comes from a piece of writing where Girard is referring to a dazzling essay he says, dazzling essay, by a Japanese ethnologist uh, in which the idea of scapegoat is, uh, is uh, explored without any reference to the, to the way it's used in the, in the biblical literature. And here's what Girard says about it. He says uh, the Japanese ethnologist is talking about the Japanese theater and the role of the scapegoat in the theater. And Girard's comment is this. In certain types of traveling theater, the principal hero, who is, of course, the one who plays the role of the scapegoat, is so polluted by the end of the performance that he has to leave the community without having contact with anyone or anything. Now, before I go on with Girard's quote, go back here. Pandarus is hardly the hero of this play, but if you look around for heroes, who is? There isn't one. Pandarus is in some way a major protagonist, though one that plays behind the scenes. You could say Pandarus is the director and producer of this play. You could almost say Pandarus is the playwright. There's some implication of that. So what happens at the end of the play is that he is expelled by this last comment of of Trolla. Hence Broker Lackey. In other words, you're polluted. You're the problem. Get out of here. So he has to be eliminated. Girard goes on to say, in this sort of theater we come upon an intermediary between ritual expulsion and dramatic art. And if literary critics would pause for a moment to reflect they would find it has much to say about the meaning of our own theater, about its relation to ritual and about the well-known Aristotelian catharsis. So at the very end of this play, Pandarus is dismissed. Remember, I quoted Goddard, who said, if you want to see the mind of Shakespeare, this is the play. Pandarus gets the last word. He's left on stage alone, and he responds to having been rejected by his last client. He says, a goodly medicine for my aching bones." Now, bone ache was a euphemism for syphilis, for the, for the symptoms of syphilis in Elizabethan times. So there's a strong implication here and elsewhere in the play of, of uh, being contagious with syphilis. A goodly medicine, speaking of Trollus' condemnation of him, a goodly medicine for my aching bones. O oh, world, 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 thus is the poor agent despised. O oh, traitors and bawds, how earnest are you set a work, and how ill requited. Oh, world, 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 you come to me, you want me to get it going for you. And then when it comes to its conclusion, you condemn me for having done what I did. Why should our endeavor, Pandra says, why should our endeavor be so loved and the performance so loathed? What verse for it? What instance for it? Let me see. And then he thinks up a little song. Mer- full merrily the humble bee doth sing, till he hath lost his honey and his sting. A little sexual innuendo there, sir. Everybody's happy until one loses the honey and the sting. And being once subdued in armed tail, sweet honey and sweet notes together fail. And the last couplet there is a little bit of a, of a military image. See? Being once subdued in armed, and tail, sweet honey and sweet notes together fail. In other words, it, it catches hold, everybody's enthusiastic, it's all going well until one loses the honey and the sting, the battle and everything else. And then the notes and the honey and the music, the sort of myth of it all, Collapses, just as it has in this play, and then Pandora says, "Good traders in the flesh, set this in your painted cloths." And painted cloths, apparently in, in Shakespeare's time, were uh, draperies in the brothels that had that had uh, scenes depicted on them. And traders in the flesh would be, of course, the brothels and the brothel keepers. So now he's talking to the, to, the, to his fellow fellow panders. As many as be here of Pander's Hall, your eyes half out, weep out at Pander's fall. Or if you cannot weep, yet give some groans, though not for me, yet for your aching bones. Now this, I think, is really amazing. Pandarus is standing on stage, and one sees him at the very lip of the stage, you see. And he says, as many as be here of Pander's Hall. And when, in, my, in my direction of this, you see, he opens his arms and he invites you to see something very startling. The audience thinks that there is a fundamental division between itself and what's happening on stage. What's happening on stage is Pander's Hall, right? Right? That's, the, that's where it's all happening. And here's Pandarus saying, This theater is Pandar's Hall. And what's more, the contagious disease I have just told you I have, the bone ache, you now have. Here are the lines As many as be here of Pandar's Hall, your eyes hath out, weep out at Pandar's fall, or if you cannot weep, Yet give some groans, though not for me, yet for your aching bones. In other words, something has happened in the course of this play which has caused his disease to become contagious to the audience. I think that's what he's saying. Brethren and sisters, he says, of the hold-door trade, the pander, some two months hence my will shall here be made. It should be now, but that my fear is this: some galled goose of Winchester would hiss. It was re- reputed that the Bishop of Winchester had a brothel, and the and the uh, and the prostitutes in the brothel were called the the, the geese of Winchester. You see, so some some uh, some whore would get angry with me if I if I uh, if I shared with you my will and testament right now. So later, a couple months later, we'll do that. Till then, I'll sweat and seek about for eases, and at that time bequeath you my diseases. You know, you know who I think is talking here? William Shakespeare. I think he is revealing and in, and in a way being troubled by his own role in the contagion of the mimetic process. His own dispensing of the formula, even though that's not what he's trying to do, he's trying, he uses the triangle over, it's the basic building block of the Shakespearean drama, is the triangle. He uses it over and over again, and in every case, he mocks it. He shows that it's a disaster. He makes fun of it. In the comedies, he, he, he makes fun of it. In the tragedies, he shows the dire result of it but what i think he's realizing here is that it doesn't matter whether you make fun of it or prove it's a disaster what the audience takes away is the formula and not your commentary on it so that it is spreading i think this is shakespeare having a kind of a kind of career crisis i'm spreading the disease even though i'm critiquing it which if you look at it is a is a fundamental human problem how often do we charge out to remedy the problem only to find out 20 years later that we have replicated it right well this is a this is a literary playwrights version of that same thing just to give you a background on the triangle you remember this comes the, the triangle enters into the to Western literature via the troubadours in the south of France in the 11th century. They came into being in a Gnostic environment in in the the south of France at that time was dominated by what later was called the Catharist heresy, or the Albigensian heresy, was a Gnostic heresy which despised the flesh and the earth. And everything had to be spirit. And the, and the flesh had to be completely dominated and rejected. All fleshly uh, impulses had to, be, had to be viciously suppressed. And in that environment, the, in a sense, the monks of the Catholic tradition found out that by telling these stories of the triangular romance, they could awaken libidinal energies in their, in their audience but the, but the condition was always that you may mu- you look but not touch. This could never be put into actual life. These are stories designed to arouse your ardor, but never to, to, uh, to, to suddenly become sociology, for goodness sake. This is, these stories are designed to create spirituality, not sociology. But, of course, the, the, the minstrels came along and made it available for whoever wanted to do whatever with it. And despite the intention on the part of its first inventor, so to speak, they essentially invented a new form of energy. The triangle—it was like discovering—it was like discovering, it was like discovering uh, how to split the atom. As a matter of fact, it has some interesting symbolic parallel. And the and the and the minstrel took it and dispensed it to everybody without any of the uh, taboos that had been associated with its original discovery. And it just spread like wildfire. I think Shakespeare is realizing at this moment that he has suffered the same fate as the original discoverers of the, of the courtly triangle. Well, let me take a few minutes, if I may, to comment on Pandarus's speech and to try to talk you into coming to this film next week. I know people are not, uh, uh, I know attendance drops off when films are shown here. So uh, I, would, I would love to have you see this film. So I'm, in part, I'm going to comment on Panders' speech. In part, say something about the film. In Girard's book, uh, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, he has a dialogue with uh, two other French scholars. One is uh, Jean-Miguel Orgoulien. And uh, Orgoulien says this, A particular phenomenon often found in the theater is the lover's passion. As it develops, the passion contracts the field of consciousness and concentrates the subject's whole attention upon the object of desire. Remember what Ulysses had said about Diomedes? He sees neither the heaven nor the earth. All he can see is Cressida. It's this, contraction of the field of, con- of consciousness. Ogurling goes on. The element of theater begins at the point precisely where the object makes its appearance, the desired one. The triangle of relationships appears in filigree and the rivals can make their entry. The triangle just appears in its vague form and then the rivals can step into the picture. Theater, Orgillian says, comes into being as a transfigured and symbolic expression of mimetic desire. Now he says this without any reference to Shakespeare, but you see, it seems to me that's exactly what Pandarus Is recognized, Shakespeare is recognizing via Pandarus at the end of this play. In another context altogether, Girard says Plato's vaguely expressed fear of mimesis is still the primitive fear, the fear of uncontrollable mimetic rivalry in which cultural differences dissolve. This also accounts for the hostility of many traditional societies toward images, mimes, Actors and theatrical representation in general. That is to say, and I think this is again what Shakespeare is coming to grips with here. Life imitates art. Life does not imitate the moral you draw at the end of the artistic expression. Life imitates art. And art for Shakespeare has been triangular. And I think. The in this play, it, this play ends with his recognition that somehow he himself has been a pander, that this whole theater is pander's hall. There was a truce in the middle of this play. During the truce, the Greeks and the Trojans commiserate with each other warmly. It's like those stories you hear of World War One, where the Germans and the English got together and sang Christmas carol. And then the truth was over, and they got back in the trenches and shot at one another. And one thinks, there were, true, there were two truths there, or two things that, that claimed uh, the title of truth. One was the one that got them to sing the Christmas carols together, and the other was the one that got them to shoot at each other. Now, while they were singing the Christmas carol, somebody blew the whistle, said the truce is over, and the other truth seemed more true. Isn't that true? Isn't that amazing? Exactly that here. When these during the truth, when these Greeks and Trojans are talking to each other, it sounds for all the world like an intermission at a theater. It sounds as though they are backstage and the war is out there on the other side of the curtain. And as soon as the as soon as the intermission is over, the curtain goes up and they'll be back in it. Agamemnon embraces Hector, and he says, What's past and what's to come is strewed with husk and formless ruin of oblivion. But in this extant moment, faith and troth, strained purely from all hollow bias drawing, bids thee with most divine integrity from heart of very heart great Hector welcome. And they embrace. And Nestor says to them, says to Hector, I knew your grandsire and so on. He says, Great Mars is the captain of us all. All the soldiers are there together. Great Mars is the captain of us all. In fact, we're all on the same side. We're the warriors. It's, a, it's exactly like the National Football League. We may be traded and be on another team next year. But we're all in the same game. And it's only when the whistle blows, the curtain goes up, that we take our respective positions and pretend that the distinction between us is absolute, when in fact it is non-existent. So it's Hector says to Achilles, I pray you, let us see you in the field. And Achilles says, Dost thou entreat me, Hector? See, there's the use of the word entreat, remember, in the, in the sense in which we read it. Dost thou entreat me, Hector? Tomorrow do I meet thee fell as death. Tonight, all friend. It's like the intermission. But the message is that the show must go on. The show must go on. Shakespeare spent his life as a playwright and an astute observer of the human predicament. And he came to the conclusion that all the world's a stage and that we are all playing our part or our role. And as he grew to understand that, he came to understand the melodrama of that and then I think he came to understand his own complicity in the, in the dispensing of the formula for the melodrama. I'd like to conclude our comments on Trollus and Cressida and talk you into coming to see the Kurosawa film next week by quoting some things from Love's Body by Norman O'Brown. He says, Some capital text in the New Testament Tell us that God is no respecter of persons. Uh, for Norman O'Brien, Brown, uh, the Greek persona, the, the, uh, pers- which means the mask you wear on stage, which amplifies your voice and, and uh, presents you as one of the one of the uh, characters in the plot. Uh, the mask is when he talks about personality. He's not talking about the mystery of personality in the, in the sense that sometimes Jung will talk about it. But he's talking about the, the role that we play in the social configuration of things. So he says, some capital text in the New Testament tell us that God is no respecter of persons. Not taken by masks, which is a quotation from uh, chapter 10 of Acts. Not captivated, Norman o. Brown says. God is not captivated by persons or masks. Not crazy about them not taken in, not deceived by them. This is the God in whom, quote, there is neither Greek nor Jew, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, end quote. This God cares not for the visible distinctions or visible achievements, outer works. The faith that saves is internal and invisible. Christian virtue, St. Augustine says, is of a kind that, quote, cannot be displayed before men to be seen by them, end quote. Here is the deeper root of the Augustinian and Puritanical opposition to the theater. But the theater is the political. This Christianity is subversive of the public realm. My kingdom is not of this world, not of this world of outward appearance, this vain show. It is a real kingdom, not a spectral theatrical show. I want to quote some more of Norman O'Brien here in a second. Kurosawa's Kajimusha is a film that came out in 1980, won won the grand prize, at the Cannes Film Festival in 1980. It is a long film. I'll speak about that in a second. And it is about, it's a samurai setting, as this, many of his others are, and it is about a warlord who finds a a an identical twin, so to speak, not related in any case, but someone who looks exactly like and he, who's a common thief. And he's retained in case they need it. And the warlord is killed. And this common thief is put in his place. He doesn't know anything of the samurai traditions. He has He's surrounded by, by the courtiers, you see, who tell him what to do and how to say things and how to bow and all the rest of it. He doesn't, he's lost. The film takes place in a social cultural environment in which theater, politics and the primitive sacred are indistinguishable because of course the warlord is a kind of a god to, to his feudal empire but what is important from our perspective what we've been talking about here is that here is someone who sees the inside of the system but who has not been imbued with the mythology that makes it safe for him to witness the inside of the system. He's not one of the priests that's allowed into the inner sanctum, and he's allowed in anyway. They turn him into a scapegoat. He ends up on the periphery looking back and seeing the disaster that has come from it. And I want to say it is unbelievable when this man you have to sit through two hours and forty minutes of this film in order to get the power at the end of it. Kurosawa is, is, is a director who requires patience. The thing is slowly developing. We in the West, you know, and modern people, we're anxious, we want to fast forward, we want to get to the point, uh, hurry up, let's have these, no, no repetition and so on, but repetition uh, is is liturgical, and these scenes, these things repeat themselves, and our minds are ready for the punchline after twenty minutes, but our solar plexus is not ready until two hours and forty minutes, and it's wonderful to realize that. You you sit there and you think, oh, it's getting late, I'm getting tired, I wish it'd get, but when it finally comes, it's unbelievable, and then it's and then about three days later, it hits you. It's a, it's a marvelous thing apropos of that and of today's material a couple more things from Norman o. Brown. political society articulates itself and produces a representative and is then ready for history tragedy even as the chorus the dance group articulates itself and produces the hero the dying god you know in the history of tragedy, tragedy starts as a sacrificial ritual and becomes then a drama. And in the history of tragedy, there is first just the chorus, and then the chorus, uh, there's almost a, a kind of organic uh, splitting off. One member of the chorus steps out and dialogues with the chorus. And we know from from historians which playwrights provided which innovation. One steps out and dialogues with chorus. And then another steps out and dialogues with chorus. And then you begin to have a a tragic drama in the sense that we think of it. So that's what he's talking about. The articulation, one person comes out from the group. Representative political society. One person is elected. One person is chosen. This is apropos of the Kurosawa film because this one person takes on the life of the entire tribe. He says, political society articulates itself and produces a representative and is then ready for history tragedy. Even as the chorus, the dance group articulates itself and produces the hero, the dying god. The chorus has a leader of the dance. The young men of the war dance have a leading man. More and more, they differentiate him from themselves, make him their vicar. Their attitude becomes more and more one of contemplation. More and more they become spectators of his action. Theatrically speaking, they become an audience. Religiously speaking, they become worshippers. He becomes a god. Gradually, they lose all sense that the god is themselves. He is utterly projected, which is exactly what happens in the Kurosawa film about the warlord. Norman Brown says, the chorus identifies with the hero, he, he is their vicar in whose actions they take vicarious pleasure, the vicar also in vicarious punishment, their victim, their scapegoat, the lamb which takes away their sins through whom they obtain vicarious redemption. And finally this from Norman O'Brien. God does not go for personalities, that is to say personas, who play a role in the whatever drama is currently uh, getting top billing in Pander's Hall God does not go for personalities, nor does the last judgment consist in the award of prizes to personalities for the performance of their parts the performance principle must go the show must not go on the parts are not real for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. He is not your personal savior. In the last judgment, the apocalyptic fire will burn up the mask and the theater, leaving not a rack behind. That's a quotation from the Tempest. Leaving not a rack behind. Now, the show must not go on. That I don't. I don't think that is to inspire us into some kind of external political action, you know, shut down the sociodrama. Couldn't do it anyway. Just be another act in the sociodrama. Be another scene in the sociodrama. To try to shut down the sociodrama. He's speaking to the spiritual problem each of us has. The show must not go on. And I think it's absolutely in keeping with Shakespeare. You see, if I were... Read Shakespeare, you want to be a director. You don't want to be a playwright because you couldn't possibly pull it off, but you do want to be a director because you think, oh, what wonderful opportunity. And for me, if I were directing, as Pandarus is giving this last speech, he would slowly be removing certain pieces of makeup which would reveal underneath it the recognizable countenance of William Shakespeare. And he's recognizing his part in it. And in a sense, saying the show must not go on. He says, I, I will, I'll leave you my will and testament later on. Would that I could do it now. He said. Would that I could do it now. But too much, he, at, at this point in his career, there's too much riding on him to be able to walk away from it. But he says, I'll walk away from it later. And when I do, I'll bequeath you my diseases. The show must not go on. Desire and the and the whole triangular structure of the sociodrama is constantly falling apart, dis- coming to disaster, but always deciding that nevertheless the show must go on. And Norman O'Brown, Brown, who is classical scholar, uh, Kierkegaardian existentialist, wild. Puts his finger right on it. In this dream that somebody shared with me a long time ago, there are two boxers and they're, they're in the ring just pounding each other and bleeding and just. And the bell rings and suddenly they're seen in the dressing room and they're sitting both facing mirrors talking to each other, applying, you know, red ketchup on various places and talking about round two. One had black shorts and one had white shorts. And it's just a little insight into this sort of intermission where we, where you see what it is. And, and Christianity is the intermission that's trying to become the end of the play and we go there on Sundays for an intermission and then go back into it (laughs) but it's offering itself as a as an alternative this concludes reflections on William Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida if you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G Thank you for your interest in our work.